Well, good morning, friends, and happy New Year! I hope that you all had a wonderful Christmas and a safe New Year. That you are happy, healthy, and all good.、Um, I'm excited to be back with you to keep going with Revelation. We are on chapter six today, and the good stuff keeps coming. So, just when you thought chapter five was good, chapter six is here.、Um, it's going to be an exciting ride. And today, of all things, we get to do the four horsemen, which is something I think even those who've never read Revelation have heard as a phrase: four horsemen, right, of the apocalypse. We're going to get to it. It's going to be good. Before we get started with our study, just a few pieces of housekeeping. A reminder that we've got an email list that we send to everybody to make sure that we know what books we're studying, like which chapter, which week. If we've got an off week, to make sure that we're all aware and that we're kind of keeping the same schedule. And it's also good for us to inform you of anything, any changes that may take place. If you're not on our email list, then visit our website, stmichael.org/rbs, which is Rector's Bible Study, and send Meredith an email. She'll add you to our list. And on that site, stmichael.org/rbs. You can get a bookmark for the spring schedule. That spring schedule will tell you week by week which chapters we're reading all the way through the early part of May when we conclude Revelation. I think we only have one week off for spring break.、Um, not sure for sure,、um, but check that schedule. It will make sure that everything is tight and you will not miss any chapters of our study. I guess the only other thing to do is say a prayer, and I want to encourage you to let us know if you have any prayer requests.、Um, you can send Meredith an email. You can write those requests down in the comment section because we are our own community here. Even if we can't be physically together,、uh, I like to make sure that we maintain prayer support for one another. And so, if you've got specific requests, let us know. We can say those together here. But until we receive specific requests, we'll say general prayers. So let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for a new year. We come to you today with the hope that 2021 will be an improvement on 2020. That we will help to stem the tide of this pandemic. That as treatments become more and more available, more and more of our people will be made safe. Today, many are sick. And struggling both with COVID and with countless other struggles, be with them, help to make them whole, heal what ails them, surround them with love and support, surround them with skill and wisdom for those who treat them, and help them to always know that you are present every step of the way. Lord, we give you thanks for the gift of this life, for all those we love. For those we love and see no longer, may your peace, which passes all understanding, fill our hearts and minds today and every day. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Reminder: comment fields in Facebook and YouTube. Make your comments there as questions are asked or comments are made. Meredith will ping me, and I'll be able to address those questions live today. And if you're not watching live, You can add those comments or questions as we go, and we always check those comment fields before we do next week's study, so we can collect questions and try and address them each week. If you're watching on our website, 
then you can send Meredith an email or if for some reason you can't make a comment or add something to the chat, then just shoot Meredith an email and her email address is on our website. It's just mrose at stmichael.org. So last week we, or last week, the last time we gathered, which was a few weeks ago, um, we had a number of comments made which were super helpful. And one question that I wanted to address, um, Howard asked if I would go back over the lamb winning the lion's victory story from chapter five, um, because he just wanted to fill that out a little bit more. So in chapter five, we see one important moment, which is the scroll is held up, it is sealed, and somebody needs to be able to break the seals. And John has this moment where he says, I can't do it, and who can do it? And the lamb presents itself as the one who can break the seals. Now in chapter six, seven, eight, we have those seals broken. And so we're gonna get to the breaking of the seals in chapter six, but in chapter five, the scroll is still sealed. The lamb presents itself as one who can break the seals and open the scroll and really get the whole ball rolling, this cosmic rescue mission that God is on to save the world really begins with the opening of this scroll. Now, the lamb represents Christ and or the Messiah. We can be more technical. It's the Messiah. And of course, we know the Messiah as Christ, and the lamb has a strength about it like a lion. The interesting mystery of Revelation is there's a lot of contradiction. There's a lot of comparisons and dichotomy that is really not meant to be crystal clear, We hold things in tension in Revelation, and those ideas are important. It will be very important in chapter 6 as well. And one of the ones in chapter 5 to hold in tension is this idea that the lamb is strong like a lion, but gentle like a lamb. And the strength of the lamb is in the love that the lamb shows the world. So Christ, as the Messiah is not the Messiah people expected. And this is kind of that recurring theme, right? If you look at Old Testament or Jewish prophetic traditions, the Messiah is seen as this strong unifier, maybe a military force, someone akin to David in their military and political prowess, and Solomon in their wisdom, Moses in their faithfulness, and on and on, right? It's this combination of all these things. But one thing is pretty sure within the prophetic tradition The Messiah is coming to undo the evils of the world, to overthrow the evils of the world. When Jesus comes, he doesn't do that the way that most people expected. Instead, what Jesus does is Jesus overcomes the evils of the world through love. That is not terribly satisfying to a lot of people in Jesus' lifetime. Nor is it terribly satisfying for Christians in the first century or, let's be honest, Christians in the 21st century. There's a struggle among Christian disciples as to how best balance this idea of lion and lamb. We see that writ large in our own day. How often do you hear a Christian pastor, preacher, teacher, whomever, define Christianity as something that is quite strong and defensible and aggressive. And you think to yourself, well, that's not exactly what Jesus did, right? I mean, we really actually think of 
what Jesus literally did on earth, he allowed himself to be executed. So Jesus, who could have easily done anything and prevented his crucifixion, didn't. Okay, so then what does it mean for us as Christian disciples? Should we be fully passive? Well, that's not exactly what Jesus did either, because Jesus was quite clear with boundaries about what was expected of us and how we are to care for one another in that kind of active, not just passive way of loving. But there's a balance struck. And, you know, the reality is we're not going to strike that balance perfectly, but we are meant to pull and push on these ideas of lion lamb and strength and passivity in order to land at some idea, some idea of God's love. Chapter 6 really gets at this a bit more, so I may just stop there and we can wrestle and tweak this idea as we go through chapter 6, but the idea of what is peace, what is love, how does love overcome evil when love seems passive? By the way, love is not passive. We as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, are meant to struggle and hold these things in tension, knowing that we'll never get it perfectly right. No one who ever says they know exactly what to do knows. We all have to do this together. That's why community is so critical. And you've heard me say before, being Christian on your own is just not a good idea because we need one another. We need one another to kind of push and pull on us and hold these complicated ideas in tension. Okay, let's go ahead and jump in chapter six. If you've got more questions or if something I said could be clearer, then make those comments, ask those questions, and we will get all of those dealt with in this study as much as possible. I think I basically covered how we got here, chapter five, right? We're in the throne room. John sees this uh, scroll held up. The seals are on it. The lamb's going to open the seals. Now we get to the point where the lamb begins to break the seals. The first part of chapter six includes the four horsemen. So the first four seals are broken and the four horsemen kind of appear out of the scroll or on the scene or because the seals were broken. So the first four seals will be the first four horsemen or actually the four horsemen. And we're gonna go through all of that in order. But before we get to the actual horsemen, I want to sort of set the stage here and remind us all how to approach Revelation. Revelation is a vision about God's ultimate plan of salvation, okay? God's healing for the whole world, God's ultimate new creation. This is a healing and a recreation that undoes everything that has been done up to now. It actually heals what is broken, makes us whole and one with God. This is a difficult idea because for most of us, we understand God is just all-powerful, can do whatever. Healing could just be healing, right? But what God is doing here, what God has set in motion in the first creation is a balance rooted in love. And I'll say more about that. Think about any real, true healing. Take, for example, if we get infected, right? If our bodies are infected, what do our bodies do? Immediately starts working to resolve the infection. 
and the product of that work to solve the infection, to heal the infection, is a fever. Now, fevers are dangerous. Fevers can be too high for our bodies to handle on their own, but fevers are actually a sign that our bodies are working as hard as they can to heal the infection. In that way, our bodies actually get worse before they get better, right? When our fevers spike, our actual health is worse than it was when we were first infected. But we have to go through that dip, go through that valley, all that pain, in order to actually heal the infection, right? As the fever breaks, then the infection is going away and our body is, at, is healing, right? So we kind of have worse before better. This is the same kind of idea, take for example, addiction recovery. If you've ever seen or witnessed or supported someone, or maybe you yourself have gone through addiction recovery, it would be so nice if an addict, knowing that they are an addict, simply can make a decision one day to stop. That's not how it works. An addict does have to make a decision to stop, or maybe sometimes that decision is forced on them, but at some point, a decision is made and the addiction is going to be broken. Once that decision is made, it'd be so great if we just sort of were not addicted, but that's not how addiction works. Instead, addicts go through withdrawal. There is a painful, really difficult, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual phase that an addict goes through in order to get to recovery. So just like God's salvation story, there is something hard before we get to healing. There is difficult before we get to peace and love. Effectively, what we're seeing here in chapter six is that idea that things will get worse before they get better. This is critical to understand before we get into chapter six, because if we don't understand that the way that God has set up the world is that things may get worse in order for them to get better, then every single step along the way as we go through Revelation, you're going to say, but why? But why did that happen? Why did that happen? Kind of settle with this idea that things get worse before they get better. The other thing I want to say is I don't know if this is going to happen, right? I've said to you before, Revelation is not predicting the future. Revelation is a theological truth. I do think that it makes sense that humans have to kind of hit rock bottom in a sense. Few of us are able to make really hard, good decisions without being faced with something difficult. Um, maybe we don't have to actually like hit rock bottom in that horrible sense, but oftentimes we need a crisis. We need something to happen in our lives where we're effectively shaken and that gets our attention so that we can make a hard but good choice. I do not think that what John's vision does is set up a prediction of what will happen in the future. But John's vision of things get harder before they get better seems to be very true for our human condition and consistent with the way that God has set up the world. God created the world 
and roots everything in this idea of love. Love is complicated and love is not passive. And Revelation invites us to expand our understanding of love in a way that makes us agents of love in the world, helps us to choose the hard, good path of love in order to find wholeness and healing. Okay, so that's all kind of the preamble of where we're going with chapter 6. Now let's get to the fireworks. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. We're going to look at the four seals and the four horsemen, and maybe it will be helpful for me to say, oh, you know what I forgot to tell you? Today's study is in two parts. The first part is the four horsemen, and the second part is that the end is near. So we're going to look at the four horsemen as the first section of today's study. Sorry about that. And as we go into these first few verses of chapter 6, it'd be helpful for me to tell you what the four horsemen are, right? First horse is horseman is riding a white horse, and they represent, or that horseman represents, the desire to conquer and to overcome and to rule over one another. The second horseman riding a red horse represents earthly peace that is stripped because it was never true in the first place. The third horseman rides a black horse and represents the economic and political disparity of rich over poor. The fourth horseman riding a green horse represents death, which is the ultimate threat to our human reality. All four of these horsemen represent four human dynamics that are problematic for us. These four horsemen own the four most fundamental problems with our human social order, our human structure, the four underlying problems of the first creation. And so we're going to talk about each one of those four here in order. Let's start with verse 1 of chapter 6. Remember, John is speaking. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out, as with a voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. All right, so we'll pause there with this first horseman. So the first horseman represents the desire to conquer, the desire to overcome and rule other people. Human history is replete with one group of people looking to have power over another group of people. Sometimes that's within the same social structure, but oftentimes we see it writ large as one tribe or empire or nation trying to capture or overtake or rule over another tribe or nation or empire. And we see this over and over again. The map of the world shifts constantly as empires expand and contract. These conquering desires of our human condition are most often expressed or most vividly expressed through war. Wars are always about power. Wars are always about maintaining power, gaining more power, the fear of losing power, and even though they may be articulated in many different ways, it's always about power. This first horseman articulates this messy human desire to rule over one another. Let's keep going. Verse 3. 
When he opened the second seal, I heard the living, I'm sorry, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. And he was given a great sword. All right, second horseman is a little harder to understand. Let's begin this discussion by identifying or defining peace. Now, if I were to ask you, what does peace mean? What does peace look like? What is peace? I would imagine that most of us, maybe all of us, would venture a guess or a description of peace that has something to do with our earthly reality, right? We often, I mean, gosh, I hear people all the time say things like, um, you know, referring to the past when things used to be peaceful, right? Oh, I wish people weren't doing that today. Remember when that stuff didn't used to happen. Remember when we were able to walk the streets or drive where we were or send our kids and blah, 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 right? There's always this sort of back in the day, things were better. This idea of peace back when is typically what people think of when they think of peace. But peace is not just the absence of war. Peace is not just the absence of struggle or heartbreak. And any period of time we, any of us, would identify as peaceful on earth is only peaceful to some. Because most of the time, most people are not experiencing peace. Yes, there are phases of time when a small group of people somewhere in the world might actually experience a life of peace. But even in those little moments where a small group experiences peace, the majority of the world is not experiencing peace at the same time. This idea of peace is really a human construct that is never true on earth. And so this second horseman takes peace away. In other words, the second horseman is removing the veil, the, the fake peace that we tend to talk about here on earth in order for us to get real. We tend to be polite and that politeness tends to keep us from being real and honest with one another. Now, we can say that from a social standpoint, that's a good thing. But if we're actually looking to heal what is broken, we have to acknowledge the brokenness. We can't gloss over it. We can't be polite about it. We've got to really wipe away what is a veil in order to get to what is real so that we can actually heal what is real. In other words, it's like sometimes you've got to, sorry, I have this gross image in my mind, so I apologize for this, but it's almost like when you get gangrene or something, you've got to actually like clean it out, which hurts a lot and is very rough before you can heal. I'm sorry, that's gross. Um, another idea would be, say you've got to do, you have internal injuries, well, you've got to actually open a body for a surgeon to get in and heal what is broken or ripped or torn or bleeding or not, whatever. And the actual act of opening a body up in order to do the surgery that will save their life is a violent act. But that's the kind of exposure that you need in order to heal what is really broken. This second horseman exposes the lie 
of peace on earth in order to help heal us toward God's peace, the peace that passes all understanding. We as disciples should be pretty willing to acknowledge that whatever peace we think we have on earth is not the true peace that God promises. That's a hard thing because we are, life is hard. And in general, we're tired. And it would be so nice to just be tired and frustrated and talk about how things used to be so much better. It's just not true. Instead, why don't we take that desire for better and work toward God's idea of peace and God's idea of healing and wholeness? It's a hard work, but it's really good work. All right, reminder that questions, comments, all that good stuff are very welcome. I'll take a swig of coffee and see if anybody has some. I hope that you will make some comment here because I think, <laughs> let's see. Oops, I totally messed up my camera. <laughs> Sorry, one second. Sorry, I tapped my tablet. I need to move that over so I don't hit that again. Um, I think that here we are, January of 2021. The 21st century has not been easy. However, I think if we were to look back at the first 20 to 40 years of the 20th century, we might agree that was worse. All right, so let's keep things in perspective. The 21st century, however, has exposed brokenness that we'd all like to ignore, that we'd like to just sort of sweep away and not think about. Instead, I wonder if we can, because of our faith in Christ, because of our discipleship, actually have the courage to look at some of these really terrible, broken things that have been exposed and try to work on healing. That kind of healing is sort of the, the desire that Jesus had when he spoke about heaven on earth. That desire that Jesus had when he encouraged people to go follow him and move toward God's peace and God's love by ignoring the opportunity we have right now in January of 2021, I think we miss a chance to really move toward healing. And of course, it's not going to be perfect, and it's not going to be everything that God wishes it were. But we have agency. We have responsibility. And we can make a difference if we take a deep breath, you know, put our big kid pants on and actually wrestle with some of these really hard ideas instead of letting fear keep us from having hard conversations. We're told over and over again not to be afraid. So let's not. Okay, let's keep it moving. I don't mean to get bogged down and all that. Um, let's look at the third horseman, verse five. When he opened the third seal, 
I heard the third living creature call out, Come. I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a day's pay, and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. (laughs) This is such a funny passage. Um, So we get this third seal broken, and the third horseman comes out riding a black horse, holding a pair of scales. And then they say something about wheat and something about barley and then something about wine, right? It's sort of strange. What is happening here in this, in this particular passage with this third horseman is exposing economic problems within our human social structure. And now let me kind of parse that out a bit. Consider the motivation of war at any time in our history, of conflict, building from the second horseman. What does it mean when someone goes to war for power? Typically what happens as that war is executed for power is that the economic balance comes undone. So if you've got two empires relatively near each other, who both have imbalanced but somewhat, you know, uh, relatively balanced kind of economies, and one empire goes and fights another or overcomes one or defends against oncoming, all that good stuff, the economy suffers. Think like America in World War II, right? The economy takes effectively a nosedive. Now, we can argue that when an economy becomes unified, even if it's hard, It's actually better long-term that the economy is unified. But here's where the third horseman exposes what is hard for us to hear. When the horseman says, a quart of wheat for a day's pay, three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine, you might think, what in the world? Commentaries, including the one that we read along with this um, study, say that what's really happening here is exposing the disparity between the rich and the poor. When wars happen, when economies go out of balance, it tends to be hardest for the poor. You may have heard the phrase, it's very expensive to be poor. What that means is the poorer you are, the less flexibility you have to function in a world that is built by and maintained by the wealthy. It is difficult to maintain a good, a decent, a a good enough quality of life when you're poor versus when you are wealthy. It may not feel that way to the wealthy, but the reality is it's very expensive to be poor. And effectively what this third horseman is exposing is that disparity, the wealth gap that we hear talked about so much. And we don't really like that because we as wealthier people in the world tend to like what we have. And what this third horseman is exposing is the human desire for more. Humans naturally want more than they have. It's just, it's our nature. We want more authority. We want more autonomy. We want more agency, more control, more wealth, more security. You name it, humans want more. That desire for more necessarily motivates us to go and get it. 
when we go and get more, whether it's a physical going and getting, or whether it's a structural going and getting, passing laws, creating hurdles, creating red line districts, I mean, you name it. When we go looking for more, somebody ends up getting less. That human condition means that we naturally go out of balance. And that's difficult to struggle with because we all think we are entitled to more, deserve more, have earned more, and shouldn't the others who don't have more just work harder in order to earn? It's the way that we've been for a long time. But what we see here in Revelation is this third horseman calling our attention to whether or not that's human economy or God's economy. And that's a hard, a hard idea to wrestle with. So let's keep pushing on. We get to the fourth seal and the fourth horseman. Let's look at verse seven. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature call out, come. I looked and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death and Hades followed with him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. Now the fourth horseman riding a green horse represents death. And this threat is a relatively simple threat to understand. Death is and remains the ultimate human motivator, right? We understand this. We can and will do just about anything to keep from dying or to keep a loved one from dying. I mean, in my ministry, I often face situations with people who are ill, sick, maybe even at the end of their life, where they or their families wish to do anything possible to keep a person from dying. The problem is, much of the work that is done to keep a person from dying doesn't really take into account whether not dying is truly living. I say to families regularly, there are worse things than dying. Dying, death itself, should not be something that we really fear. As people of faith, as disciples of Christ, we may want to live in order to be with those we love. Of course, that's natural. But the fear of death, is something that I think we should work on to at least lower. You can't ever overcome the fear of death in truth because that we're just, we're human. But if we can work through less and less fear of death, then when we come to the end of the life, our lives, we can actually welcome the next phase of our life, right? Life does not end in total. Life just changes. And so long as we can wrestle with the true fear we have of death, then we can actually move toward a way of overcoming that fear. Not entirely, but in a meaningful way. Um, as John writes this letter, just kind of a historical side note, what's interesting about this is, I should step back and say, if you think through human history, how do you ultimately control another person? Well, there are plenty of ways to try and control other people, but if we think about the maximum 
way to control a person is to threaten their life or the life of someone they love. In the first century, there is a sea change in the way death is used as a tool. Think about the Roman Empire. They used death, like many empires before, but perhaps most effectively, as this ultimate motivator, this ultimate fear, this ultimate terrorism, until Christians turned that idea upside down. In the first century, Christians, beginning with Stephen and moving on, stopped fearing death. They began to understand their faith identity as one that overcomes death. Death is no longer to be feared. Christ himself defeats death. Jesus has been resurrected and has ushered in a new reality. And in that new reality, death itself no longer has to be feared. And so you get the rise of martyrdom. Martyrdom overcomes and upturns the most motivating way to control people. Rome had perfected the terror of death, right? All crucifixion was, was terrorism, right? You put someone on a cross and put them out in public and you say, he didn't behave and so he's died this horrible death. You better behave or else you'll die just as terribly as he did. It's terrorism. And yet the Christians say, you know what? Try your best. Feed us to the lions. Crucify us. Do whatever you want. Because our faith is in a God that transcends everything you see. You have no real power, just earthly power. God's power overcomes everything that you can do to us. And that changed the game. When death is no longer feared, the human economy of power begins to fail. This fourth horseman really owns this idea that death is not enough to be feared when your faith is in God. And it's powerful. Okay, I think we're good with the four horsemen. We're going to keep on in the second section. Um, verse 8 ends the first section with the four horsemen. We're going to go into the fifth and sixth seals here in the rest of chapter 6, but I want to encourage some comments, questions, whatever you have. Um, make sure that we are still all good and that I haven't lost anybody. So let me know if you've got any of those. Otherwise, I will press on. Ah, nice deep breath. Four horsemen, man. You know what I should have done? I really should have gotten a picture for you all. Um, the four horsemen have been so interesting throughout time. I just didn't think of it yesterday or this morning. Um, I'm going to go find some interesting horsemen art, and we're going to look at that together next week. Okay. While we may be receiving comments or questions, let's press on. The second half of today's lesson, um, I'm just calling The End is Near, because we begin to shift away from the horsemen and toward the actual kind of act of healing. So if the four horsemen, the first four seals and the horsemen, were ripping off and exposing all of the bad stuff, the real infection of evil in the world, the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals 
begin to move us toward healing. It's not whole healing, um, but we're at least kind of shifting away from the horror, so to speak, of the four horsemen, and we're moving into this apocalyptic scene of what happens on earth and in heaven and in between and all that good stuff. So let's look at verse 9. We're going to separate the rest of chapter 6 into two parts and take a look at the fifth and then the, the beginning of the sixth seal. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. All right, we'll pause there. Speaking of martyrdom, we have a very interesting moment here where those who have died as martyrs of the faith are sort of uncovered. Apparently, they've been under the altar. Um, so we've got this fifth seal is opened, and under the altar there, we assume in the throne room, are the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and the testimony they had given. In other words, here are the martyrs who have died for the word of God, died in their faith in the Messiah, in Christ. They're given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, which is just, it's just a funny way to put it. Um, here as this fifth seal is opened, that those who have died cry out for judgment. They cry out to, for God to ultimately finish this thing, right? They died in the faith that God would ultimately judge the world and make everything right in the new creation. And here they are waiting for that moment, crying out to God for that judgment, and God effectively says, listen, what you did is good and right, and you just have to wait a little while longer. So God effectively gives them this, these white robes of purity, meaning they're good. They're in, a, they're in the good place. They've done the right thing. And they just simply have to wait a little while longer, rest until the end, because the end is near. So let's ask an important question. What is it that these martyrs are waiting for? Now it appears, based on the four horsemen, that they're waiting for evil to do its worst and for humanity to face and make their ultimate choice, God or not God. That's really what people are facing on the earth now and in this story, right? It's the same thing right now. We can choose every day, multiple times a day, countless times, God or not God. What is being set up in this vision is an affirmation that those who have chosen to follow Christ have made the right choice. They may not have experienced the resurrection in its fullness yet, but they've made the right choice, and so should we, who are still on earth, make the right choice. On the surface, this is pretty straightforward, right? But when we think of resurrection, 
there's a pretty interesting question we can ask here. These martyrs are under the altar resting, not living in some fullness just yet. So what happens then after death? We often believe that someone dies and they're immediately with God and they're sort of in the fullness of heaven, in the oneness with God, and we talk about how loved ones are watching us from heaven, that loved ones are with us in some spiritual way, yet this vision kind of puts faithful departed in a holding pattern. Like they're, they're okay, they're good, but they're not complete. You know, they're, they're safe and they're being held, but they're almost being held in this stasis They're not quite in the fullness and oneness of God's reality. So it's a very interesting question to ask. And before before you wonder why I'm not answering the question, I don't know. Um, But I want us to wrestle with this idea of whether we like John's vision here. And that may seem like an odd question to ask, but I think it's okay for us to read the Bible wrestle with it and unpack it and expose it, and then say, do we like that? And I don't mean, do we like it in some shallow way? I mean, do we think that this vision really gels with our experience of God, our experience of God within our faith community, and with the inherited story we have in the Gospels? When we have seen people throughout history, these saints, these faithful people, make choices about the way they live, teach and speak and preach, and build up the church over time, do we find that this vision of the deceased, the faithful departed, works? Does it fit? Does it mix or match properly? And that's a great question for us to ask. We're not going to know. We won't know for certain, but as we, in our own discipleship, seek to become better and better, closer and closer to God, these are good questions to wrestle with. What seems to be right? Yeah, I'm going to stop there. Um, Big idea. How does God work? So let's just take a pause. This is not really about the seals, and it's not really about, you know, the judgment of the horsemen or anything like that. It's really about asking the question, um, how do we think God chooses to act and not act in the world? And we've addressed this many times in our Bible studies over the years, um, but this seems like an interesting moment to ask the question because many people like to understand God as all-powerful and able to do whatever, whenever. Okay, I think that's good. God is God, after all. But God has set in motion a created order that isn't based on power, but is based on love. All right, I'm going to say that again. People tend to put God in a box that is defined by power and ability and agency, right? God can do anything at any time for anyone in any way. Good. But we are attributing power to God in a way 
that is really human and earthly, not godly and heavenly. Instead, what God has done is created a world in which our perception of power is not God's reality of power. And this gets back to what I said early on about lion and lamb. We often understand God as doing or not doing out of the power that we seek in the world, that strength. And instead, God is doing or not doing because of love. Love is God's ultimate power. And true love is not forced. True love is reciprocated. It's the foundation of everything that God is and how God created the world. Love cannot be forced. Consider the ways that Jesus talks about God's kingdom or about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus always spoke as if heaven was very near, as a promise from God, but heaven is never something forced on us. Rather, it's an invitation, right? Jesus invites people to follow him, to find the good, to be peacemakers, and to be lovers in the world in order to seek out and find God's truth. Revelation is often a dramatic, crazy story, but the fundamental idea that God is inviting us into a reality of love and our freedom to respond undergirds this entire crazy Revelation story. Love cannot be forced, and we always have a choice. And as this cosmic rescue mission really kicks into high gear, the fundamental truth that we can choose God or not God undergirds everything that's going to happen. And so, it undergirds everything that we do, every choice we make, the way that we live is always God or not God. We're going to take a pause right there because I saw a few questions pop in. Um, David says, there seem to be two visions on the seal's trumpet bowls, that they are either sequential or in parallel. So do you see these judgments are a crescendo of increasing intensity or some of you in different... Great question, David. I will articulate that better. Um, Yes, and Kimberly says, this chapter speaks to today's calamity and disparities, wealth gaps, death, marginalized communities, inequities, 100%. Um, let's, let's jump with David's first. So uh, I think I said this at the very beginning of our study of Revelation. Think of Revelation as a story happening at once rather than like a string of pearls where one thing has to happen before the next thing happens. If, do you remember, okay, let's think of some of my favorite movies. Do you remember that movie Traffic from like 20 years ago? Or perhaps Love Actually? Um, these are movies that are known for brilliantly weaving many storylines all at once. When you watch movies like Traffic or Love Actually, and I'm sure there are plenty others that aren't popping into my head, You've got lots of independent storylines that are articulated in the movie as all happening sequentially. So something's happening over here, over here, over here, over here, here, all at the same time, and they all sort of converge on themselves. And a really good storyteller can tell stories like that so you know everything is happening at the same time and they're all 
weaving together and converging on one another and moving toward a particular goal. With a big heart, I would venture to say, John just isn't that kind of storyteller. Maybe he would be if he were, I hate to say better, um, but it's not really what I mean. But in a sense, if you were to take the story of Revelation and put it in the hands of a seriously masterful storyteller, then I think what you would get is scenes that jump back and forth within multiple storylines that all converge together instead of what we get in the written text of Revelation, which is one thing happens after another. I don't think that's really the way this is meant to be understood. It's almost meant to be this rush and crash altogether of the new creation rather than dominoes falling one by one by one. So that's that's my interpretation opinion. I think that's really where many scholars would land. Um, and so it's good for us to keep that in our minds because we don't want to make the false, draw the false conclusion of causality. We don't want for us to understand that, oh, well, the third horseman had to appear before this other thing in chapter eight happened. Probably not. These things are sort of happening like a symphony. Everyone's playing a different part and they're playing it all together in order to reach the end, to have that salvation moment, that rescue mission actually come to fruition. Um, Kimberly's comment is exactly right, and that's really what I was leaning into, is the 21st century, in particular the last maybe 10 or so years, have really opened up a lot of wounds. They've exposed this idea, and I think that all of us are wrestling with the idea that Peace for some is not peace for all. Um, Equality for some is not equality for all. And it is complicated. It is so complex and so complicated. But I think that if, if we can find a silver lining of some kind over the last 10 to 20 years, it might be that we are in a sense more exposed, we are a bit more transparent in what is broken, where pain and heartbreak really is. And like a good fever, you've got to kind of get worse before things can get better. Otherwise, you just gloss over it and you put a pretty face on something that is down deep, ugly, and infected. Instead, you've got to kind of open it up clean out the infection in order to actually reach healing. And it doesn't mean there won't be scars, but healing won't ever happen unless you sort of clean out the brokenness, clean out that infection. And I think we actually really have an opportunity here to hang in to what is hard, hold on to these exhausting, difficult things that are happening within our social structure with the hope, really the godly hope, that we can all move together, even if we're moving on different tracks, we can all move together in the same direction toward this promise of God where love is real and peace is real and not just the human veil, but the godly truth. So yes, I do think this chapter has a lot to tell us about 
how we might maintain a sense of faithfulness even when the world seems so very hard. All right, gang. Oh, I'm running out of time. Um, okay, okay, okay. Let's, it's okay. We're going to just ping the sixth seal. Look at verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll rolling itself up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? We're going to continue the sixth seal next week. But I will just leave you with a little nugget of this sixth seal idea. The sixth seal is different than the first five. It appears to turn the tide against the evil in the world. We hear that the powerful, right, the kings, the magnates, the generals, and the rich, run in fear of the earthquakes and the blood moon and all the rest. The powerful hide in caves and on mountains, begging for death, begging for the rocks to fall on them so they don't have to see the face of God and experience the wrath of the Lamb. This could be understood as sort of a positive term, right? All the bad people are getting what they deserve. But we have a real question here. What is the wrath of the Lamb? What is the fear they have in the face of God? Wrath is a strong word. And the lamb, right, is not the lion. So what really are they afraid of? What are they seeing? What are they experiencing that caused them to be such, so afraid that they would run and hide and even beg for death than to deal with? And I'll leave it there as we consider and look forward to next week. I thank you all for joining me once again. I'm excited to be back with you for this new semester. We're going to be moving ahead to chapter 7 next week. Tell a friend, invite a friend to Bible study, share this video with someone, and bring more people on into our family, and we're going to be doing good work together. God bless you all. Happy New Year. I'll see you next week. Bye.